We began two weeks ago with a couple who was uh, longing to have kids, waiting to have kids, expecting to have kids, and they were barren. There's waiting, there's pain, there's crying, there's some hope at times, there's grief at times. A couple longing to have children, waiting to have children, and not able to have children is painful. If you don't know, it's painful. Maybe a wife who grew up dreaming of being a, a mom. Maybe a dad who's a, or a, a husband who's really good at, who's a great uncle. He'd be a present dad, but, but waiting, nothing. And then created to reproduce, and so there's feelings of failure, of shame, regularly. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? And there's also feelings of guilt. Did I do something? What did I do wrong that got us to this point? I must have done something wrong. Also feelings of less than inferiority. There is something wrong with me. I'm broken. So I told you this a couple of weeks ago. That's where we began thinking about Advent. But also told you last week that C.S. Lewis said that we all are living in the hangover of naturalism. He says we all have naturalism in our bones. That idea of naturalism, there's only what you can see, only the nature around you, only what you can observe and touch and feel. That's what's real. And there's nothing beyond that. There is nothing transcendent uh, beyond this world, nothing supernatural. And I told you, I think naturalism is a way of seeing the world without miracles. The, the most famous, I guess, in American history is Thomas Jefferson, right? Like, I'll take the New Testament and I'll cut out all the miracles of Jesus and we'll leave it with what he said and no miracles. That's naturalism. But then I also said you may have grew up in the church and maybe you are living kind of in the hangover of moralism where everything was about being good, the idea of being good, and then a good probably outweighed your bad, and that's really what, by the end of the day, not explicitly stated, but implicitly the whole tone was, if you did enough good, then God would love you and you'll get to heaven. And I said, that's a way of seeing the world without generosity. There's no generosity there. But what I want to think about this morning is uh, another ism, if you'll, if you'll bear with me, but agnosticism, agnosticism. And I would say that idea of like, I can't decide if there is a God or if there's no God, I'm not going to be a believer, I'm not gonna admit that way, and I'm not gonna commit to saying there's no God, I'm gonna be atheist, I'm gonna be unknown and kind of stay in that middle. I, I think that is a way of seeing the world without joy. A way of seeing the world without joy. That way of thinking, that way of life leads to despair and emptiness and hollowness where life loses its purpose and really gets to the point where there's nothing to look forward to because everything has lost its joy, everything has lost its color, everything has lost its excitement, its thrill, its purpose, its meaning. 
But actually all these do. All of these isms lead to that path, lead to despair. Naturalism chooses a bubble and ignores the magic of the universe. If you stay in that bubble for how long, how long will it take you to despair? It's kind of contingent upon you, but you'll get there eventually. You may be really resentful. Resentful. Uh, that's not what I meant. Resilient. You might be really resilient, but still, in that bubble where there's no magic, moralism leaves you despairing because you'll never be good enough. Never. Even when you get really good and you arrogantly take that as an I'm doing good and then that's the problem itself, right? <laughs> but even underneath that, even when that's happening, you, you know really in your heart of hearts you're never going to be good enough. Because you've known what you've really done. You've known what you've really thought. You've known what you've really wanted. And then the agnosticism, that unknown, leaves you unsure and uncommitted. And one principle principle I've learned. Joy rides with commitment. Quick happiness rides with everyone, but joy, joy rides with commitment. Comes along with, hand in hand. But if we're going to talk about the despair and the isms, this isn't if you're guests, you should let me tell you. If you've been around, no, you should know my posture in this, right? I'm not lobbing criticisms, more isms, at people that are entrapped by isms. What I'm trying to do is say, hey, we have some despair in us as well. We have some problems as well. And, and we have probably, if we have some despair, can point at some of these things and say, I've drifted towards moralism. I've drifted towards naturalism. I've drifted towards agnosticism and not God-centered, Jesus-saturated, spirit-driven life. Whereas joy is in abundance because in the presence of the Godhead is forever joy. Yeah. But, but drifting, drifting, drifting always tends toward despair, hopelessness, emptiness. Which makes sense, sadly. I don't know how to say this. But we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and we're also one of the saddest nations in the world. Now, that, it sounds so weird, right? Because we have been told and told other people all our lives that, that money can't bring you happiness. Then we all say, but it can buy a jet ski. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, right? We all say that kind of stuff. Like we really kind of believe, hey, if we did have enough money, we didn't really have to worry about anything, and we could kind of buy all the toys we wanted, we'd probably be really happy. We'd probably be really comfortable and excited, and everything would be easy. Yet, with a culture that has that the most, and you feel like I'm, I'm cherry-picking, we can debate it, but just generally, can you hear me? One of the wealthiest and also one of the saddest. And so, joy doesn't shine brightly like the sun shining brightly in the morning unless there's the darkness. Meaning, 
we could jump straight to the candle and talk about joy, but I want you to first start with where are you despairing? Where has despair touched your heart and there is that hollowness, that emptiness? And, and you're like, it's not pervasive. Ryan, I, I'm not on medication. Well, this, this, even talking about depression has so many implications. I'm not gonna make any judgments on the choices you've made with your medication. We could talk about that personally, but we're one of the saddest people. And if you're saying it's not pervasive, well, can you at least maybe open up to the idea that there's something there? Humility would say possibly there's something that that there's not joy in my life. There's there's this despairingness, this emptiness, this hollowness. It's not all pervasive and not overwhelming my whole life, but it, it's it's tearing up that that part of my life. Ask it a different way. That hollowness, do you sense a hollowness inside somewhere? Or work, or your family, or something has lost. Life, life has lost its spark. Or has the story of God lost its invigorating power to you? Or it doesn't invigorate, it doesn't give life, it doesn't well you up, it, it's, it's flat, it's dull, monochromatic, lifeless. A couple of weeks ago, the couple I was talking about was Abram and Sarah, and they were barren. But then God shows up and promises to Abram that I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you a place, and I'm going to give you my presence. And then Abram and Sarah wait and wait and wait, doubt a little bit, go back, unsure if God's going to really do it, take it in their own hands, wait, 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 go back, take it in their own hands. Wait, wait, wait for years. And then he gives a son. He gives a people to this couple and they become a great nation. He's a generous king who brings fruit to barren places and so he gives them Isaac and then Isaac turns into the nation and the nation goes to Egypt and it grows massively but then it gets put into slavery and then God rescues them and they get taken to the promised land through the desert and that's where we've been sitting kind of in Judges is in that space but we saw that in Judges that the chorus line of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes did evil because there was no king in Israel and so we begin at the end of Judges, you begin to really hope, long for a king. Like, will there be a king? Can we find, can God provide a leader that has character and power? And you're waiting there. And you're, where's the king? Who's the king going to be? And then Saul comes in, you're like, uh, power, okay, yeah, yes, he's big, huge, actually. Not the character. And then David comes in and you, you get a, a little bit glimpse of both. Like he, he's powerful. By God's spirit, he's powerful. And then he's also got the character of a man after God's own heart, God says. But then he fails. And so then last week we saw in Isaiah, in the midst of this destruction and oncoming, oncoming uh, uh, 
onslaughtment from the Assyrian invasion of the north through Galilee. They said, no, 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 Galilee, where it's the darkest, where you get attacked the most, a light's going to shine. What's that going to be? A child is going to be born. And that's prophesied. And we saw the, the titles of this child. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. And then 700 years go by and they're waiting. And if you're trekking, 300 years have to go by and then there's another prophecy that this child is going to be born in Bethlehem. But then that's it. And then we got 400 years of waiting for a child to be born in Bethlehem before the temple is destroyed. Waiting. <laughs> with, with that waiting, I've noticed with our kids, the, the waiting with Christmas brings more joy when the gift is open. And it can bring more joy. I see, it can, I see it in one of our kids. Just It can bring more joy as they wait. Like joy builds as the anticipation builds. You know, like I've got one kid that just gets giddy. Think about it. You know, he's like all that, all that excitement energy, you know. He's, he's all torsos. It's just all here. Ugh. Just excited, you know. Every, every day he wakes up and he's like, ooh, six more days. Woo. That's not true. Whatever. He's excited. You know, I remember that as a kid too. Uh, there was times where we'd go to my grandmom's house and we'd spend the night there, and I would have to sleep on the couch in the den where the tree was lit up, and all fifty presents were under the tree because it was all like the family members, and I had to fall asleep in that room. Come home. I'm a parent now. I'm like, who who does that to their kid? There was nowhere else. There was nowhere, no room in the inn. There was nowhere else you could put me. You know, put me in the present, like just looking the whole night. It's like, well, where's the steamer so that I can get the, the tape, you know? Pull. But one time I did. We were at our house. It was probably five, six days before Christmas, and my parents had wrapped something. And uh, I've told you before, I love basketball. Love basketball since I was a kid. Would, uh, if I ever watched NBC. Uh, uh, the NBA on NBC on Sundays. I would play basketball outside right beforehand, watch it, go play during halftime, watch it, play afterwards. Uh, and so I was waiting for a basketball. I'd been asking for a nice, newer basketball. Um, and then my parents wrapped a box. But I don't know how they are now. Probably the same. But, you know, it's a ball, and then the rectangular box is in the middle, and you've got kind of the the rounded shape at the end and they wrapped it like that and and I knew I was I mean I was young but I was pretty smart I was like I think that's a basketball <laughs> I'm pretty sure but but I wasn't sure so I was like let's prove it you know and uh and so I, I didn't the first day after that I did and the second day I'm like mm. and then the, by the third day I started picking at it and if you just pick at it that's not cheating that's not finding it you know it's just exploring and so I'm exploring the gift, and maybe I'll catch a hint uh, through it, you know. But then if you also can imagine the wrapping of the basketball, there's that, that space between the cardboard box that's wrapping and the space of the basketball. So there's a little bit of air. So by the, I don't know, the fourth day, just 
stuck my finger through the hole and yep that's leather that's a basketball and then I remember getting to Christmas and and Kayla and I were talking about this week the idea of like when we've done that Christmas is not fun because you have to fake joy in front of your parents that's the worst you're like a basketball yay thank you (laughs) and they're like that seems off you're gonna sleep on the couch in the tree next year um But there's something about that joy of waiting for what you're going to get, for what you're going to get, but as it builds to when it's going to happen. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the generosity and joy. The joy and generosity here. So I said, 700 years after the prophecy of a son, 400 years after Malachi prophesied in Bethlehem, a son will be born, a son was born. And then last week we saw the interactions between the angels with Mary and then their response to the birth of the son. Now, the longest intro of my life to get to Luke 2. Okay, here we go. Luke 2, verse 21. This is all neat because that's why I had to set up so much. This is amazing. Luke 2, verse 21. He'd been born, Jesus. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so they're, they're righteous parents. They're godly parents. They're following the law. Uh, the eight days after circumcision, they're following that. They're presenting to the temple. Now that dedication, that's Exodus. You, you should be thinking about Exodus again there, that the, the, the firstborn was sacrificed so that the Israelites could be rescued. They were provided with a replacement that their firstborn children didn't have to die if the blood of a goat was painted on the doorpost of their houses. The angel of death would pass over their houses and see the blood. There's already been blood shed here tonight. No more blood here. And then after that rescue, God says, you'll dedicate your firstborn to me because look what I did for you. And then the provision in the law is also recorded there about the turtle doves and the young pigeon, meaning the sacrifice is a sheep. That's what the requirement is, but the law says in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, the idea of if you don't have a sheep, meaning you don't have money for a sheep, then you can sacrifice instead two turtle doves or two pigeons. Now, that's not the story Kevin McAllister got, but they were poor, so they didn't have a sheep. So they sacrificed two turtle doves to follow the law of what God had required for their son. And in verse 25, there's a man now. So they take him to the temple in Jerusalem. You have to think this is another excursus, another journey. The first time we met them, they were on a long journey, right? We see them together, they're on this long journey to Bethlehem because of 
the decree of Caesar that there's going to be a census. And now they take this other journey again to Jerusalem. There's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Okay, so this guy's been longing, waiting for Israel's consolation, the comfort of Israel to come. The Holy Spirit's on this man. In the Old Testament, you see that happening over and again where it's on for a season. The Holy Spirit's on this man, present with him. And then you see the next phrase, verse 27, guided by the Spirit. So the Spirit's on him and then leads him, guides him, takes him to the temple. He entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. You take that in? Okay, there's a righteous man in Jerusalem, been waiting for a long time for this promised Messiah to come, gets guided by the Spirit to go to the temple that day when Jesus' parents are bringing his, him to the temple for his circumcision, for the sacrifice, right? And we, we, we got to, uh, we took our children to a rabbi to be circumcised uh, days after they were born. They were born uh, uh, two of them were not born in the hospital, so that's what we did. Do that. Uh, God is amazing. Blood clots, blood clotting begins to happen after eight days. That's why He instituted it. But both times we had to travel to Dallas to the temple because there's a traveling rabbi who does circumcisions, and he'll come and he'll do it. And why did I? I didn't write this down. Like I have to explain so much now. <laughs> I'm just trying to tell you, I get I know circumcision. <laughs> but the we go there and the rabbi, like, you know, is talking to us and prepping us. But he makes he just makes all the dad jokes ever in the world. Repeatedly. And they are hilarious I just can't stop laughing but then I start laughing because I think this is his job and this is what he does every Friday and Saturday he just travels or I'm sorry every Saturday uh, he travels every Sunday he does this uh, he, he he does this and he tells the same jokes to the same people like me every all across the country and that started making me laugh harder and then I was thinking we brought the second son to him and, and he said stuff about the first son. He remembered and made jokes and I'm like, goodness, this is it's funny. And then I'm reading this story and I'm thinking, this is what's happening for Jesus. I'm going to the temple and I remember, I mean, it's not Jerusalem temple. I remember going to the temple in Dallas and there's something about it. You know, you're going in there for this. It's a big deal and it's your child. But instead of our guy picking up our, our boys and, you know, making jokes, Simeon picks up Jesus. It doesn't say exactly how, which is interesting. 
But guided by the Spirit, it's like he just goes over and just grabs Jesus out of Mary's arms and is like, boom, and tells everyone who he is. I've been waiting for you. I've been praying for you. I've been longing to be comforted and our whole nation to be rescued by you. You are the light to the Gentiles and the glory of our people. What is that? That's the joy of receiving. Been waiting a long time. The Spirit told him he'd see the child before he passes. And when you've been waiting and longing, praying and hoping, and then it arrives, joy, 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 joy. He says, I can die in peace, Lord. I've seen your salvation. Now with this series and talking about the generous king and what I, I hear so often during this season, I assume you thought we'd be s- discussing the joy of giving. Like how you can find more joy if you'd open up your checkbook like it's 1999 and not be stingy, right? Thank you, Andrew. But that's not this text. This text is you can find more joy if you'll open up your heart to a generous God. That's what this text is. You can find more joy, not if you open up your checkboard. That's not where we're going first. That's not where we start. We start with opening up your heart to the generous God who loves to give. So then we should love to receive from him. Do you hear me? You don't. I get it. I get it. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. Paul quotes that in Acts 20. He says this. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so then we take that, right? And we make that the whole thing. That's not the whole thing. Can you get it with me? Track with me. He said it, Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive while he is giving himself to us. <laughs> Do you hear it? That, that's, that's why he could clearly say this. I'm giving you myself, my life, my very being, even to my death, I'll be your sacrifice so that you'll know joy. So what does that mean? It gives God great joy to give. And if you skip right to you should give like him, then you miss what he gave. If you skip right to you should give like him, then you miss what he gave to you. Christmas is the joy of giving and the joy of receiving. It's the joy of God giving to us and the joy of us receiving from him. That's what Christmas is. Now, how we celebrate our traditions and how we give, yeah, it flows out of that, and there's great joy, and it is horizontally blessed, more happy, more joyful to give than to receive. But all that flows out of what you've received from the one who's given to you first, the initiator. It always begins with him giving first to you. The, the present of God is the presence 
of God for your pleasure. That's Christmas. For your joy, God gifts you his presence himself. Simeon gets it, and he's like, yes. A light to the Gentiles, our salvation, our nation's glory. The true Israelite indeed. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, says this. What makes his power sweet? to his children and his justice in confounding their enemies and giving rewards and his wisdom sweet in reconciling justice and mercy together wisely in Christ. All that makes this so lovely is his grace and love so that if we would see the glory of God, it appears most in grace and mercy and loving kindness and such sweet attributes. This is the turn. This makes all things in God amiable. For now we can think of his justice and not fear. It is fully satisfied in Christ. We can think of his power with comfort. Why? Because it serves for our good to subdue all our enemies. There is no attribute, though it be terrible in itself, but it is sweet and amiable because God looks graciously on us in his beloved. We must take God not as considered abstractively and simply, but God in Christ, for other notions of God are terrible. But the notion of God in Christ is joy. So take in, stop, and take in the joy of receiving, of what you have received. Simeon's not the only one. There's another one that'll help us. Verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. Having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. Okay. So she's plus 100. She gets married 13, 14, 15. She's still plus 100. She's a prophetess, widow, now she just lives in the temple. And her vocation is to wake up, sometimes eat, but most of the time fast and pray. At that very moment, verse 38 says, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about Jesus to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So she says, yes, you're right. 104, 105, 110 years I've been waiting, longing, hoping for this day, for the redemption to happen. That's 700 years for the whole nation of waiting. 
400 years since they've heard about the town. And then silence. And then now, in the temple, is the child who to you is born a savior. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, here. And Anna gets up and she just starts thanking God and then speaking. She just starts telling everyone who will hear it. You've you got to imagine this. My, my mom's mom is in her 90s. Uh, at the holidays, she gets around, she, she helps us with dinner, she makes food still, she walks around slowly, she communicates softly, you've got a woman like her, just in the temple, waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying. Then Simeon says this. She hears it. She knows as well from the Spirit, this is the truth. And then she just starts telling everyone, thank you, God, and then turning everyone and telling, yes, this is the redemption. This is the Redeemer. This is the one that has been promised. So I, I'm trying to hopefully think you, make you think about the waiting, the, <clears throat> the joy in waiting, and also the joy in receiving as you've been waiting. But I also really want you to get the joy of what you have gotten from Jesus, what you have received, namely Jesus. That, like, like that, that's where I'm turning now. I'm trying to thrill your heart with who Jesus is. So that in your depression, your despair, whatever you've tended towards, that you would begin to see and feel the warmth and the thrill in your heart of who he is that he has arrived and that he will arrive. All right, joy. Another Puritan, William Bridge. These guys like lengthy things, so it's a couple of slides. But he says this, be sure that you think of Christ in a right way and manner as he suits your condition and as he is held forth in the gospel. The scriptures hold forth the person of Christ in ways that make him very amiable to poor sinners. And that, that's why I'm going to start thinking about the titles, right? That's why I keep repeating the titles. He says, are you accused by Satan, the world, or your own conscience? Jesus is called your advocate. Are you ignorant? Jesus is called the prophet. Are you guilty of sin? He is called a priest and high priest. Are you afflicted with many enemies, inward and outward? He is called a king and king of kings. Are you in dire straits? He's called your way. Are you hungry or thirsty? He's called the bread and water of life. Are you afraid you shall fall away and be condemned at the last? He is our second Adam, our representative, in whose death we died and who has satisfied all that God requires of us. Just as there is no temptation or affliction, but some promise or other is especially suited to it, so there is no condition, but some name, some title, some attribute of Christ is especially suited to it. Any of your pain 
any of your suffering, there is a title, there is a name, there is an attribute of Christ that comforts you in your affliction. If there's any sin, there's any brokenness, if there's any idolatry, and if there's any destruction in your heart and in your family, your relationship, there's not a name, not a title, not an attribute of Christ that is not especially suited to it. This is the joy that our ancestors so waited for, that we can take for granted because it hath happened. But it's the same joy that will well up in our hearts as we see the glory of Christ. The same, it's so hard to find joy. The same enthusiasm and thrill, that long-standing happiness, but it's not just a feeling, it's a attitude and a choice how is this counted all joy? But this joy, this exuberance, this ability to see the world with happiness and light and not just darkness and morose and morb morbidness or even a nihilistic thinking of nothing really matters because nothing matters in the end, so nothing matters now. there's a way to see the world that there is hope and peace because it's how the world really is. It's not a trick in your mind of just how you see the world, but it's actually a, see a way of seeing the world correctly. That this isn't just a bubble, and if you even imagined it like a bubble that Jesus shot through your bubble and penetrated and made everything different, popped your bubble wrecked that thought and said, I'm here. The hope, not of just one nation, but of the world. I've, I've quoted this before. I think my stats are once a year, and that will probably stay the same, because it's one of my favorite quotes about Jesus that you can get a sense of, of the joy of him because some of the if ideas have consequences well some of the worst ideas we have is about Jesus about who we think he is who we think he's like Mike Reeves no this is what he says just one second Max I didn't give you this part he says what a life Talking about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior. He says, what a life. Christians often use a negative, chilly word to describe Christ's life. You know what that word is? Well, this guy's British, so he, he uses the word chilly and negative. Sinless. That's how we describe Christ's life. It was sinless. That tells us what he was not. He was not selfish. He's not cruel, not abusive, not twisted, not petty, not proud. Now, when open out like that, we can see that to be sinless is beautiful, dynamic, attractive. The trouble is we often leave the word closed, and then it reinforces all our stereotypes of what 
holy people are like. And he says, what are those stereotypes of holy people that we have in our mind? Bloodless, bland, dreamy, delicate, and so spiritual it looks painful. He's British, again. <laughs> but then he says this. But what was Jesus like? What was it? Not what he wasn't. What was he like? Anything but boring and anemic. Yeah. Yes. Anything but boring and anemic. Here was a man with towering charisma, running over with life, health and healing, loaves and fishes, all abounded in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds thronged around him. Men, women, children, sick and mad, rich and poor, they found him so magnetic, someone had just to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer. He befriended the rejects and gave hope to the hopeless. The dirty and despised found they mattered to him. His closest friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with a bridegroom at a wedding. That's the joy of Jesus, and that's the joy of Jesus present in your life if you've seen him, that he's arrived and believed that he is. And now, now if, you, if, you, if you're still wrestling with like who he is, that's who he is. If your background is that moralism and, and all you've thought is just Jesus is to just try to really make me a little bit better. No, he's here to make you new and to make you like him and what he's like is this. Yeah. And, and this isn't like a 12-step program. This is a, you become like who you worship. You become what you hope in. You become like the, the place you find peace and comfort. That's what I'm saying. Is like Mary and the angels in this whole story, Simeon and Anna, you believe this is the one that God promised and you celebrate and thank God for him and hope in him. And then it makes everything more joyful. Meaning, With Jesus and the joy of Jesus in the world and in your heart, your life, it makes everything brighter. Meaning, Jesus isn't in a competition, in a sense, for like the other things in your life that bring you joy. He, he's the ultimate source of your joy. He's your source of contentment. And the other things that you get in joy from him throughout this life are just other evidence of his grace to you. So then you can find your joy ultimately in him, not the gifts you give, because we all know those gifts are so temporary, right? Even the gifts from God on our heart last for a certain amount of time where we like, really feel his mercy towards us. can't find complete satisfaction in any temporal gift. I said earlier we were cre created to reproduce. We we're also created to find your delight in God, not in the gifts of God. 
Even if you possessed all the good things God has created for you, you could not feel ultimate, complete satisfaction. So all your gladness and happiness rest in the God who created those things. Temporal satisfaction, temporal joy is only able to provide temporary happiness. But the, the spiritual realities of our lives, of who God is, that a light has dawned in Galilee, which means joy has dawned on the world. And that, that reality of who he is and what he's done for us, that, that's what secures our joy. That's what secures our peace. And so if you weren't expecting his arrival and just this is a, is a, uh, hit to you. That's a welcome to you, an invitation to you to respond like Anna and Simeon to believe. But then, those of you who do know Jesus, this is an invitation to abide with the presence of God, to be with the Lord. Melissa Kruger, she, she writes it like this. Daily time spent abiding in Jesus is what plants us like a tree by the stream, bearing fruit in all seasons and circumstances. Without him, we can do nothing. With him, our soul prospers and is joyful in everything. The joy of Christmas really comes down to two truths. That Jesus is like you, man, who can sympathize with your weakness, your temptation, your frailties. This world doesn't know just about that, that distant location and how you're dealing with it there, but has been there and knows it, has experienced. The joy of Christmas is that Jesus is like you, can sympathize with you. But the joy of Christmas is also Jesus is unlike you. <laughs> Sinless and perfectly joyful and gracious and loving and radiant, magnetic and obedient. Eating the Father's words and only doing what the Father told him, depending on the Spirit for life and ministry. This, this is our King in his fullness, in his glory. So unlike you, is able to walk the hill carrying all of our sins, carrying all of our transgressions to make, pen, to make payment for what we have done. So the joy is receiving that. The joy of Christmas is receiving Jesus is like me and Jesus is unlike me. Hallelujah. <laughs> And because he's arrived and because he is returning joy. That, that, that's the last thing I'll say is I, I want for me more of that, that desire, that waiting, that longing. Not that negative aspect of like, uh, of Joe Dirt of like, is this what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? But that the, the Anna and Simeon, the like, no, I, I don't want to be caught doing something bad. I want that to be the thought. I want to be like waiting, joyfully expecting Jesus when he comes. Yeah. 
Why? Uh, not because it's just a uh, desperation response. This is terrible, Lord Jesus. But no, because I know how good you are and how much joy is in you and joy in your presence. I want you now more than even this, meaning I, I, I'm not going to lose something here. I, I'm not going to believe that something here is going to be less than what's going to be there. That I'm going to, oh, no, no, I, I, I got to make it to my 60th. I got to wait to see my kids. Do I got to do that. Like, no, no, no. Jesus, come because your joy. I want that expectation, that, that holding, that waiting, that praying, that longing for a please. More joy to the world when you set it right and all of your enemies are put in your feet and there's no hint of anything that the devil is in prison. Sin has been vanquished. And all suffering and diseases and cancer has been poofed, healed, gone, no more. I want that hope for that, that longing, that expectation, that please, Lord, come. If it's 700 years, if it's 400 more years, if it's the next time we show up at the temple, <laughs> Lord, come. Lord, come quickly. For the joy of the nations, the Gentiles, and the joy of Israel. Let's pray. Father, I pray for that. I pray for more joy for us now. More delight in you. More thrill and excitement. Happiness and gladness in you. that you would thrill our souls. Your presence with your love and mercy and kindness. God, I, I pray for singing and gladness and celebration because of you are and I also pray for new eyes to see who you are and I pray I'd ask Lord that you would help us continue to grow in this and be discipled more by your joyful presence and discipled by the the saddest one of the saddest nations in the world that we live in that we'd be more discipled by your word and your spirit than the people around us the trends around us the thoughts and views around us but as you guided Simeon I pray that you would guide us as Jesus prayed, you guide us to the truth and guide us into your joy, that our joy would be mature, would be made complete, would grow. In Christ's name, amen.